When Peter and John were just beginning their ministry, they were called to account for how the things that were happening around them were occurring, like healings and people rising from the dead. And they were asked the question, by what name or power does this happen in Acts chapter 4? And Peter answered with boldness, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by his name, he is the one that God has raised from the dead. And then he went on to say this, salvation is found in no other, for there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we may be saved. Can I remind you, we have been reminding you throughout this whole service of the name of Jesus Christ and his power. Can I remind you afresh of the stakes with which this season comes upon us, this season of reaching people and seeking to invite people to hear the life-changing truth about the life-giving God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because there is salvation through no other. That's, that's the truth about our universe, the truth about our world, the truth about the world of people. There is salvation nowhere else under no other name than Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you to think about that when you think about your neighbor and your friend and your coworker and your family member who are living life oblivious to that truth. And sickness and death are symbols of sin and separation from God. And it's all around us. And we have a life-giving message that changes everything. So let's get repassionate about it and make sure that we are doing our part to invite people. In 2011, there was a collaborative report that was put together by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada entitled Hemorrhaging Faith. And in that report, it was revealed that two of every three children in Canada who begin in church leave before adulthood, drop out. And these are uh, a really sobering, this is a really sobering statistic. If you think about it, as you think about whether you, if you have three children, the statistic says two of them will be dropouts, never to come back to church. Those are very, very distressing numbers. And we're not talking about reaching the lost statistics. We are talking about statistics with regard to those that we should be keeping in the faith. And the troubling fact that was revealed is that of those that are walking away, the greater numbers are between the ages of public school and teenage years. That's a change from the past. In fact, a sobering developing trend. Many have speculated on the causes or the reasons of this drop in age where they leave even before the teenage years. I wonder if it is, has, doesn't have something to do with the onslaught of 
worldly temptations at a younger age that is inundating families, particularly with the social media platforms and the sexualized society at a younger age. That's possible. But I wonder, as I was thinking about uh, this reality, I wonder if it might not be that we have not been doing a very good job in our own lives or in the lives of our children in teaching how to resist compromise. How to resist, what kind of a strategy to have in order to resist the compromise to what we claim to believe, what we claim to value, what we claim to to, uh, discipline ourselves with in life. I, I wonder if we haven't been trading what should be a passion for discipleship for competing offers for our time and our talent and our treasure. And I wonder, moms and dads, if we've been selling our kids' discipleship for competing offers from the world of sports and the world of entertainment and the world of pleasure and the world of academic horizons. I don't know how to answer the question of what's causing this really, but I do know this, that somehow we collectively are sending a message to 66% of our children that Jesus doesn't really matter. And whatever explanation we have for that, it's a really, really awful trend. That somehow we've been telling two out of three of all of our children that Jesus isn't really worth your time. And so they're checking out. Scripture warns us about this. In fact, uh, proclaim, begin the text this morning in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And in in chapter 2, it says, stop being conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The implication is that we are being conformed, and we need to stop it. We need to be conformed to the image. We are being pressed into the mold of a secular, materialistic worldview. And we are being called by God's word to be transformed, to be changed. To be changed. Are you being changed? That's the question. Because the only way that you will withstand and resist the temptation to compromise is if God is radically changing your life day after day. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel this morning, please? In today's God's rights over ours lesson, there are some Hebrew kids that we encounter who are offered a state-of-the-art preparation for the big leagues of Babylon, and they resist. And uh, we want to look and understand what is the strategy, how did they resist? If you want to keep your family standing firm against the rip current of compromise to the godless worldview values of the secular world around us, then I would suggest you learn how to follow Daniel's example. Moms and dads, if you want to have a Daniel then you need to 
take Daniel apart and understand what makes him tick. So this morning, uh, based on chapter one, I want to offer to you um, three principles for fueling resistance to compromise to the world around us. Three principles, but let's read the text. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but you probably know them by different names. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we call out to you this morning with burdened hearts as we revisit the statistics of our failures. And these are tragic failures. These are desperately tragic failures, oh God, which have littered the landscape of Christian history. And so, our Father, we pray this morning with a sense of burden and concern on our hearts about the 
whole matter of living in a secular society that's seeking to lead us and our children to compromise, to suck us into the values of a total materialistic worldview, to abandon our confidence and trust in you, and to fail miserably at representing your greatness. I pray, O oh Father, as we launch into a season of reach with a opportunities before us, I pray, O oh God, that we might pay attention to our own homes and our own situations first, that we might consecrate ourselves and ready ourselves for the mission that you've called us to. I pray that we might rid ourselves of anything that would be displeasing to you, O oh God, that we might be able to be blessed and a blessing. So by the power of your spirit, not by our strength or by might, but by your spirit, O oh God, we ask you to visit us with power. Visit your word this morning with power. And I pray, O oh God, that we will be changed having had audience with the King of Kings this day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Babylon was the dominant world power at the time. It was about 605 B.C. Babylon had just devoured Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. And on their way back, they chose to pick off the southern tribe of Israel as an appetizer. And so we find ourselves at this moment in Israel's history. The headline in the Baghdad Gazette that day went something like this, the city of man sacks the city of God. There were many who were desperately saddened, burdened, for the Babylonians were a fierce and brutal people. This was not going to be a mild occupation. This was going to be total dominance and destruction. It went in waves. This was the first wave of exiles to Babylon. The sad thing is Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had paid hush money to the Egyptians to protect him from the Babylonians. You can find that in 2 Kings 23, 34. Rather than investing fully in God, he invested in Egypt. Trusting in Egypt instead of trusting in God and the Babylonians took them captive. The Egyptians were no match for Babylon. While the Babylonians were gouging out the eyes of King Jehoiakim, they were taking the symbols of God worship to, in your text, it says Babylonia, which in your margin probably says Shinar, which we don't know that name, but we do know the name in Genesis 11, Shinar is Babel. 
So here we have this desperate moment whereby the symbols of of everything that is loyal and meaningful to God are being hauled off to the place called Babel. The place that epitomizes self-worship, self-aggrandizement, false religion. The place in Genesis 11 where the people collaborated and said, let's build ourselves a city and make a name for ourselves. The opposite of who we are. The opposite of who they were supposed to be. The name above all names. This is the epitome, the poster child of humanism. Everything about a materialistic, secular, humanistic worldview. And so from the front of the pages of Scripture to the very back of the pages of Scripture, the symbol Babylon has always stood for the complete opposite of God worship. Babylon is the one that wants you and your family's worship. Canada has already fallen to the gods of Babylon. We are being force-fed the religion of secularism because that is the dominant power we live in. So therefore, we are also in exile. So the lessons that leap at us out of this text are completely valid and applicational to us. We don't live in as fierce a place as Babylon, but just wait. Just wait. So I have three principles for you this morning that I hope will help you. Because if it is your desire to help your family, to help yourself through God's strength to stand firm, and resist the rip current of compromise, you're going to need to embrace these principles in your life. The first is this. It leaps at me from the verse, from verse 8. The word resolved. Did you see that when we were going through? When you're thinking about how to resist compromise, there is a really critical word that is found in this text. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Since beliefs shape behavior, we need to be resolved before we will ever be ready. We need to be resolved. Resolved here has the sense of being rooted in biblical truth, being rooted in a passionate conviction about what is right and who you are and how you will live. Satan will leave you alone just long enough for you to become soft, for you to become not ready. If you happen to be in a season of life that is going so well, it could possibly be that Satan has just withdrawn his attention from you. He's not bothering you right now because he hopes that you will stop looking at the Lord, stop trusting in the Lord for your strength, that you will become soft and you will no longer be ready for the onslaught that will surely come your way. 
It is so easy to become soft and not ready when things are going well. God's people need to be different than that. We need to be resolved. We need to be prepared. We need to be trained all the time. It is easy to become overconfident. Some of you who are 55 or over will understand this graphic, this image, illustration. But you have to be about 55 or older to really know anything about this or to have anything that stirs up a passion in you. Anybody know what this is? Well, that's Paul Henderson being embraced by Yvonne Cornway and uh, cheering beside him is uh, Phil Esposito. But what is this event? The goal. Oh, yeah. You aren't even old enough, are you? The goal. This is the 72 Summit Series. This, babies, is where it all began. This is where Canada came onto the world stage and reasserted that we are and ever shall be the very best in hockey. But now I'm getting arrogant and proud, which was the problem with the 72 series. You see, the 72 series was supposed to be a cakewalk. The Soviets had, won, had just won nine world championships in a row, nine gold medals in a row. But they had never played our best players. And so as far as we were concerned, their abilities in hockey were tainted. Their gold medals were tainted. And so it was the idea of some to put together a series to end all series and give all the bragging rights to the true country that really, really dominated hockey. I would put this as a big graphic up there, but the, uh, the copyright police won't let me do these kinds of things, so I have to bring little tiny graphics now and stuff that I actually own. Dick Beddoes, the uh, sports writer for the Globe and Mail, and I remember this very well. Uh, he, among others, was predicting that it would be a slaughter, a, a complete uh, embarrassment to the Soviet hockey world. In fact, um, Dick Beddoes said that if the Soviets even win one game, and I'll quote him, he said he would eat his words shredded at high noon in a bowl of borscht on the steps of the Russian embassy. So in a hasty three-week training camp that nobody took seriously, the cigarette-smoking, beer-swilling, fat-cat Canadian hockey players assembled and assumed that just showing up would mean they would win. Most of you who are old enough remember that very first game. They scored two quick goals, and we thought, yes, this is going to be a slaughter. By the end of the game, I remember weeping as the Soviets went off the ice with a 7-3 to victory. And my whole life was crushed. As was the rest of Canada. We won the next game in Toronto, tied the next game in Winnipeg, and lost in Vancouver. And that loss in Vancouver stirred up one of the great oratory statesmen of Canada. Phil Esposito, 
who stood in front of the Canadian TV audience and said this, with sweat pouring down his face, to the people across Canada, we tried, we gave it our best, and to the people that boo us, I'm really, all of us guys are really disheartened and we're disillusioned and we're disappointed at some of the people. We cannot believe the bad press we've got, the booing we've gotten in our own buildings. I'm really, really, I'm really disappointed. I'm completely disappointed. Tell us what you think, Phil. I cannot believe it. Some of our guys are really, really down in the dumps. We know, we're trying like, I had to take out some words. I mean, we're doing the best we can, and they got a good team, and let's face facts, but it doesn't mean that we're not giving it our 150% because we certainly are. I don't think it's fair that we should be booed. To which they went, took the show to the Soviet Union and lost the next game after leading 4-1 to one in the third period, losing 5-4. to four. And now for all Canadians, we knew it was do or die. If you don't win the next three games, we are shamed on the global stage. Well, for those of you who know how things turned out, we won the next three games, won the series. Importantly, Paul Henderson scored the winning goal of every single game. And I'm firmly convinced that we won that series because of divine intervention. <laughs> no, no, I know what you're thinking. God wasn't protecting Canadian hockey. But God had in mind the salvation of a man by the name of Paul Henderson who would rise to the world stage because of that single series and was now a spokesman for Jesus Christ, 10 times better than any Soviet Union hockey player. While we were thinking we had hockey in the bag, the Soviets were putting the truth of the principles of hockey into application in their lives and were working hard in preparation. And when it came time for the series, they were actually really ready to beat us. I think there are reasons that Daniel was able to withstand the compromise offer of Babylon. And it was because in his family, they had resolved to put into practice the truth of God's word. You see, the offer of eating the food from the royal king's table was an offer of ceremonial food from a pagan nation. A nation that would offer its food sacrificed to idols. It was not only that, but this food would also violate the food laws of Deuteronomy chapter 14. Those laws were put in place that God's people might remember that to approach a holy God required a holy people. And Daniel's family resolved to be people of purity and holiness before God. And when the pressure came to compromise, Daniel was already ready. Daniel was already rooted in the things of God, in the application of God, and stood firm. 
Biblical rootedness is the truth of God's word applied. I have said this to you. Edmund Chan has said this to you. I'm going to say it to you again. And probably again and again and again. Truth doesn't change you. Truth applied does change you. You cannot change because you sit here listening to sermons. The change that will take place in your life, the rootedness that we're talking about here, for readiness that we're talking about, is the application of biblical truth. For the last number of weeks, we've been pouring our hearts and our lives into you, teaching you about the great disciplines and principles of serving God, the disciplines of prayer, the disciplines of the study of God's word, the disciplines of investing generously in God, the, the, the disciplines of time with God and commitment to God and loyalty to God. But if you have not changed one thing in your life, then you are not changed. If you have not changed in your prayer life, then you're not changed in your prayer life. If you're not changed in your time and commitment with the Lord, then you have not changed. If you haven't changed and given one more cent to the Lord, then you haven't changed one little bit in your generosity toward God. If you don't change, you won't be ready. You will continue to be conformed to the likeness of this world rather than being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Listen, I love you to death. And I urge you, I keep telling you the same thing and I'm asking you, I'm telling you that the practical realities of what we're teaching you actually have to be applied and placed into your life. You need to come to the place where under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you say, Lord, I'm not spending time in prayer. I'm not spending time in your word. I'm not generously investing in you. I'm trusting in all kinds of other things. I've turned my attention from giving time to you to giving time to all kinds of other things. Unless you make some sort of Holy Spirit-generated, driven change... You will not change. You are not changed. And you are not changing. And you will not stand up against compromise. I went hunting for evidence of Daniel's ability to stare down risky refusal or uh, risky um, offers of compromise. And keep in mind, this is not an easy particular setting. The, the, the attendant to Daniel said, listen, I'm pretty concerned about you not taking the food because the king will have my head. This wasn't a university application where you fill in your values. Or a job interview where you exchange ideas of what you believe and what matters to you. This was a life and death decision to go against a brutal, fierce regime that would take your head off in a second. This is that kind of ability to stand up against compromise. This isn't some sort of easy moment that most of us live in that is radically and dramatically changing. Even this morning I had a discussion with someone who works for the federal government and I was shocked about what's coming down the line. The intentions to infuse and impose secular worship and loyalty and allegiance is going to be more powerful than you have ever seen. And you won't stand against it 
unless you have resolved in your heart in advance, this I believe, this I practice, this is whom I am, this is the transformational me. If you take a journey through the book of Daniel, you will find a lot of reasons why Daniel was able to stand. We don't have time to take a look at all of them, but for Daniel, God was the most real of all reality. It wasn't what he could see, it wasn't what he could hear, it wasn't what he could touch, it was who he knew. And that makes all the difference in the world in our lives. It is the resolving in our hearts, regardless of what we see, regardless of what we hear, regardless of what we touch, it is who we know that is more real to us than anything else. And it is that name, Jesus Christ, above every name. In Daniel's case, in chapter 2, verse 18, verse 28, chapter 4, verse 9, verse 18, chapter 5, verse 11, verse 14, chapter 6, verse 5, verse 11, verse 20, chapter 9, verse 2 to 4, verse 21, chapter 10, verse 2, verse 12. I'm inviting you to take a journey yourself. Over and over again, there are evidences, whether it's prayer, scripture reading, getting together with others, whatever it is, and others noticing in his life who he was. There are so many evidences that tell us this is why Daniel could stand. Secondly, if we are to stand up to their culture, we must stand strong from our culture. Don't try to stand alone. There are two things that Israel never did well. Avoid assimilation and mission. And interestingly, or maybe interesting is a really bad word, tragically, Christianity hasn't done these two very well either. The church of Jesus Christ has not done these very well. Avoiding assimilation into the culture around us and mission. And I think the two are intertwined Israel was constantly sucked into the values and beliefs and practices of the system and the culture around them. Over and over again, throughout all the scriptures, you find this. And they failed to reach out to the nations around them. And sadly, this is the very same thing with the church. 66% of our children are assimilating into the culture around us. And not on mission for Christ. Now I believe that if we get sucked into the secular culture around us, we are of no value in terms of mission. And if we're not on mission with Christ, we will get sucked into the values of the culture around us. They are completely intertwined. But can I say to you that the key to pleasing God and standing firm in exile is personal, and is personal disciplines of the devotional and moral life sourced in God's word. There's no other explanation or strategy. But particularly necessary to be strengthened and encouraged from friends. Look at chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Daniel was in a four-man discipling community. Daniel wasn't trying to do this alone. 
Daniel had gathered around himself a culture of people like faith, like commitment, like passion to encourage and challenge each other and stay in each other's face and in the face of God. What culture is shaping you? What is the work of community? You see, we've been called to live in community. Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey whatsoever things I've commanded you. Not teaching them whatsoever things I've commanded you, teaching them to obey. There's the practical application of discipleship. That's what discipleship is. It is each of us in each other's lives teaching each other how to live out the commands of Christ that Christ might be formed in us, Galatians 4.19. As Christ is formed in us, we have within us the strength and power and resolve through the Spirit of God to resist the strongest of temptations to compromise. But we can't go this alone. You can't do this alone. Satan looks to pick off loners. What does the Bible say about Satan? He's like a lion prowling around looking to devour. I know something about lions. They don't wade into a pack of strong animals. They pick off the lagging, the loners, the weak, the sick. That's what they do. Don't try to stand alone against the forces of relentless pressure, cultural pressure, or its cultural values will come upon you and you will turn from the truth and you will be swept into compromise. There's a third, and let me wrap this up. Since we are a mission and not a commune, we have to learn how to be in the world but not of the world. We need to learn how to say yes or when to say yes. I want to make it, um, I want to make sure we understand that Jesus said something very important in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer between the verses of 14 and 17. He prayed there for us to his heavenly Father. And he prayed very specifically that the Father would not take us out of the world, but that he would protect us from the evil one. In other words, he said, I am sending them into the world, but, oh, Father, don't let them become of the world. We have never been called to be a commune, to circle our wagons, to stay in this place and say no to everything and somehow protect ourselves from the rest of the world. No, because we've been called on mission. We've been called to go and bless the nations. We've been called to go preach the gospel to every living creature. That requires getting out of the community, getting out of the commune, and making sure you're in the community that is lost. This exile, by the way, was God's idea. It was because of their sin, but God gave them over to Babylon. That's what the text says. God gave over Jehoiakim to, the, to, the, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have been called to be a blessing to the nations and to preach to every living creature. And I believe that what Daniel teaches us here is something very important. He said no to the food, but he said yes to the name changes and yes to the education. 
The food, of course, was a spiritual matter. It was going to spiritually disqualify him and cause him and his friends to become symbolically loyal and and giving allegiance to the gods of the land. But allowing their names to change and becoming educated was going to be an opportunity for them to bless the nation whereby God placed them. You see, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet writes this with respect to this very same exile. In Jeremiah 29, verse 4, it says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I carried them into exile. We are not here in our exile in the secular Canada by accident. God has carried us here. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That message is, for, is timeless to people in exile. We are called to bless Oshawa, bless Whitby, bless the GTA. We are called to pray for our city. We are prayed to be good citizens of our city. We are, prayed to, we, are, we are called by God to select from the culture what God can employ to actually influence and shape the culture and the mission. God was going to use the education and God was going to use the names that they had. God was going to use that to enable them to bless the nation that they'd been placed in by exile. That they might teach the nation that they were in that there is a God in heaven and that this God is great and this God is powerful and he can change lives and he can take them from being a fierce godless nation to a nation that would honor and serve God. And they were called to do that and so are we. We are called to be a blessing to our city. We are called to to take from the culture around us those things that can be used to influence the culture and turn aside from anything that would cause us to compromise or become disloyal to our God. If it compromises my holiness, if it compromises my time, if it compromises my witness, if it compromises my availability to God, I must say no. But in anything that the culture allows me to employ whereby I can be salt and light and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I say yes. And it says here in the text that as they chose to do this, living under the dominant control of God, they were 10 times better than the people around them. And that's what we ought to be. We ought to be a 10, 10 times better as teachers in our schools. We ought to be 10 times better as doctors or nurses or wherever we are. We ought to be 10 times better as lawyers or 10 times better as laborers, or 10 times better as office workers, 10 times better as students. We are called to live under the power and presence of God, not compromising our testimony or our witness, but demonstrating to the world that there is a God, and that he is powerful, and that he dominates the life of those who are loyal and and, and allegiance to him, and that he can change them and make them into usable and amazing people in the culture that they find themselves in. That's what Daniel teaches us that's who we are to be compromise puts the whole gospel at jeopardy because it says to the world around us that my God is not strong enough to look after me and I must trust in Egypt I must trust in Babylon I must trust in the secular when in fact we are called to trust and invest and go hard after God 
That's what we're called to do. So with a commitment of lo- to lots of homework, can I just say to the, all parents out there, yes to public education. Yes to private education. Yes to homeschooling. Yes to pri- public education. Yes to secular jobs and secular names. We don't have to call everybody in here Azariah. I'm still waiting for the first baby to be born in our nursery called Ricky. (laughs) Whatever happened to that name? It's a good name. Why won't one of you name your babies that? Think of the dedication Sunday. Think of what it would mean to me and how good that would be for your child, Brett. And how good for your career, Brett. It's not yes to everything, but it's not no to everything too. It's in the tension of knowing how to bless the nation and be able to proclaim the gospel with credibility. That's what Daniel teaches us. So moms and dads, teach your children. Israel neither reached out to the lost nations around them nor prevented compromise to the cultures they lived among. God calls us to do both differently, to reach the people around us and say no to compromise, that we might be a powerful tool in the hands of a powerful God as we go into this season of powerful reach. Oh God, I pray this morning and thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your patience with us. And Lord, I pray that you would change us. Please change us. For your honor and glory, I pray. Amen. That same God proved over and over again in Daniel's lives and in the lives of great champions of the faith throughout the scripture that he will take care of his people, that we don't need to compromise what we believe. God can take care of us. Daniel was favorably disposed to those individuals because God put it on their heart to, uh, to take care of his man in Babylon. We will not be able to withstand compromise unless we make it a mission in our hearts, in our families, in our lives. It seems to me that this really is an illustration of the key values here at Calvary Baptist Church of worship, connect, and reach. Regardless of what way you teach your children, private, Christian, homeschool, public school, Unless you teach them to live a life of worship by applying the scriptures, they will fall to compromise. But if you teach them to worship him, and if you teach them to love him, and if you teach them to apply their beliefs and and the truth in their lives, then they'll be able to withstand compromise. So worship is a key value. But we also believe in connect, in connecting with God and connecting with one another. We can't stand alone against the power of the secular. We have to stand firmly together in our culture together before we can face the culture that is powerfully out there. That we might be encouraged and helped and watched over and cared for and prayed for. So connect is a critical value here at Calvary and it was for Daniel. And then it's about reach. 
It's about making sure that we are on mission with Christ, that we are blessing the nations and the people around us. It is making sure that our lives are blessable, that we might be a blessing. It's making sure that our lives are pure and holy and righteous and walking with God and that we are changing. We are not being conformed to the culture around us, but we are being transformed by the image of Christ, into the image of Christ, that we might offer a completely distinct alternative lifestyle to those who are desperately dying and sick and lost all around us. And that is what reach is all about. Daniel and these faithful individuals of remnant preserved the truth of Jesus, uh, the truth of God so that we today are standing firm in the truth. Oh God, I pray, help us, help us this season to do what is necessary in our lives that we might be changed and transformed and that people around us will change, oh God, through the power of the transforming redeeming work of Jesus Christ, I pray in his name. Amen.